Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 42. Uh, This is uh, Genesis in July. Uh, All four weeks of this month, we are in the book of uh, Genesis, uh, doing a series through this book. And as we continue in our series through this book, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. And my goal today is to cover verses 1 through 38. And the title of the message this morning is The Painful Beginnings of a Great Healing. The Painful Beginnings of a Great Healing. You know, at first, to Jacob and his sons, it seemed like just a famine in the land of Canaan caused by a lack of rain during a long, dry year. Uh, Soon the famine became severe enough to make Jacob and his sons desperate for their very lives. Ultimately, this famine will set in motion a chain of events that lead to the healing of a cancer that has been eating at Jacob's family for about 20 years now. Were it not for this famine that we encounter in this chapter, Joseph's brothers would have never gone down to the land of Egypt. They would have never been reunited with their brother Joseph. Their consciences would have never been liberated, and there would never have been an Israel as we know it. Without this famine, Jacob's family would have never been made whole. And one day, Jacob and his sons, no doubt, will look back on this famine and say, thank God for this famine in our lives. The truth is that Jacob's family is long overdue for the reckoning that begins to happen in our chapter today. Twenty years prior, and we saw this back in Genesis chapter 37, uh, Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved his other sons, and Joseph's brothers hated Joseph because of it. In a moment of blind rage, Joseph's brothers took Joseph. They stripped him of his multicolored tunic. Their initial desire was to kill Joseph, but Reuben convinced them to throw him into a pit instead. And so they did that, and Reuben figured that he would circle back to that pit at a later time and rescue Joseph from the pit and then get him returned to his father. But while Reuben is off doing something else, his brothers see a band of Ishmaelite traders who are traveling down to the land of Egypt. And at Judah's suggestion, they sell Joseph to these traders. And as far as they know, that is the last that they will ever see of Joseph. At a later time, Reuben circles back to the pit and discovers that Joseph is gone from that pit. He's very upset, Reuben is, and he assumes that his brothers have killed him. He complains to his brothers about what they did, and they never correct Reuben's wrong assumption about them having killed their brother. They let Reuben think that Joseph is dead because they know that Reuben would go after Joseph and try to buy him back if Reuben knew that they had sold him. They then take Joseph's fancy tunic and they soak it in goat's blood. They bring it to their father and deceive him into thinking that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Jacob's grief, as you can imagine, is unspeakable. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and begins wailing over the tragic death of his favorite son, and he never stops mourning. He tells his sons that he will go to his grave mourning the death of his favorite son, Joseph. And as we come into Genesis chapter 42 this morning, we find ourselves now about 20 to 21 years later uh, after that awful episode Joseph's brothers are still keeping the secret from Reuben that Joseph was sold rather than killed. 
and all the brothers are still withholding the truth about Joseph from their father, Jacob. They watch their father live day after day, year after year, as a broken man who is now clinging to his youngest son, Benjamin, the way he once did Joseph. And they never confess their sin to their father. They never tell him that Joseph was not actually killed by a wild animal. If there ever was a family in need of an intervention, it is this one. And God graciously initiates this intervention in Genesis chapter 42. It's an intervention that starts with famine in the beginning of Genesis 42, and it ends with incredible joy in Genesis 45. And chapter 42 is the story of the beginnings of this great healing that will eventually come wonderfully to Jacob's house and his family. The way we're going to break down our study of this chapter is we'll observe 10 developments in the story of how a great healing begins to come to Jacob's family. And the first of these developments, we could word it this way, is famine forces Jacob to send all his sons except Benjamin to buy grain in Egypt. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. The text says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us from that place so that we may live and not die. So evidently, this is a severe famine where their lives are at stake. Observe how the brothers respond in verse 3. The text says, Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. You read that and say ten brothers of Joseph? Weren't there eleven? And yes, there were eleven. But in verse 4, we read the following. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said... I am afraid that harm may befall him. Evidently, Jacob was not afraid of harm befalling his other ten sons, but only Benjamin. Benjamin is the only surviving son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. As far as Jacob knows, Joseph is dead, and he can't let the last surviving child of Rachel die. There's every indication here that Jacob has gone from idolizing his son Joseph to now idolizing his son Benjamin. And before this chapter is over, God is going to be coming after this idol. Anyway, so the brothers depart and they come down to Egypt. Listen to what is said in verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. By the way, notice that these brothers are called sons of Israel rather than sons of Jacob. The narrator is wanting us to see these sons, these brothers, not for what they are now, but for what they will become. The founding core from which all later Israelites will descend The work that God is about to do in the lives of these brothers is not just for their sakes, but for the sakes of the millions of Israelites who will descend from them. We also learn here that they're traveling down to Egypt, not alone, but are traveling amongst a crowd of others who are making their way from Canaan to Egypt in order to buy grain. Once they arrive at the processing center in the capital city of Egypt, Joseph, their brother, sees them. And this brings us to the next development in this amazing story. Number two, Joseph recognizes his brothers as they come and bow down to him. It just so happens that Joseph was in town and personally involved in the disbursement of food at the very moment when his brothers arrive. Observe what happens in verse 6. 
Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. What an epic moment this must have been for Joseph to see his brothers for the first time after a little over 20 years. He probably had found himself wondering if his brothers would be showing up eventually. Others had been coming from Canaan to get food. Joseph might have even been on the lookout for his brothers, and here they are. His brothers would have looked pretty much the same, just 20, 21 years older, with some of them now having a little bit of gray in their beards. However, Joseph would have looked very different from the last time that they saw him with his completely shaved head and face and with his royal apparel on. Observe what happens in verses 7 and 8. The text says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But the text says in verse eight, even though no one would have been able to tell from Joseph's demeanor toward them, Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Now, at this point of the story, Joseph could have said, hey, guys, it's me, Joseph. And we might think that Joseph should have done this because we're biased by our knowledge of how things are going to turn out. Keep in mind that Joseph has no idea about his brother's state of mind at this point. And you got to be careful with these guys. These men slaughtered the men of Shechem 30 years prior. Reuben violated his father's concubine in a show of power over his father. And the last Joseph saw, these men hated him and wanted to kill him, and they sold him into slavery. So Joseph knows that he needs to learn more about his brothers before he goes entrusting himself to them. We can understand this, I think. So observe what Joseph does, and this leads us to the next development in this amazing story. Number three, let's word this point this way, with hope. With hope, Joseph accuses his brothers to get them to reveal more about themselves. Observe what Joseph does in verse 9. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. As they're bowing before him, Joseph remembers the dreams that he had about them. Let's linger on that for a moment or two. Joseph remembers his dreams from 20 years prior about his brother's sheaves bowing down to his sheaf and about 11 stars representing his brothers bowing down to him, Joseph. As his brothers are bowing before him right now in this moment, Joseph remembers these dreams, dreams, guys, that would have given him hope, dreams that actually present his brothers in a good light, united with one another and bowing before him and giving him respect and honor. Remembering these dreams, Joseph would be reminded that a day is coming when his brothers will respect him rather than hate him. Joseph would realize that perhaps this moment is the beginning of all of that starting to come true. But I love the fact that verse 9 doesn't begin with the words, then Joseph remembered what his brothers did to him. No, he remembered his dreams, which feature his brothers united in a posture of humility and respect before Joseph. And remembering these dreams would help Joseph even now to see his brothers not as they were 20 years prior, but as they will be in some future better day. 
as he looks at them bowed before him right now, perhaps Joseph's was initially thinking, God, is this the fulfillment? This moment? Is it the fulfillment of my dreams about my brothers? Joseph quickly concludes that it can't be the fulfillment just yet. Joseph's dreams featured 11 sheaves and 11 stars bowing to him. And as he counts the brothers who are bowing down to him now, he notices that there are only how many? Ten. Benjamin is missing. And Joseph had to be wondering why. Did my brothers kill Benjamin also? Joseph had to know, so he knocks them on their heels with an accusation. Observe how verse 9 ends. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And observe their response in verses 10 and 11. The text says, Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Notice how they refer to themselves as honest men. Men who are honest in their intentions and in their speech even though they've been lying to their father over the last 20 years, even though they showed themselves to be men of dishonorable intentions toward Joseph 20 years prior. Observe Joseph's response in verses 12 and 13. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And knocked off balance by this repeating of the accusation, Joseph's brothers reveal more information about themselves. Look at verse 13. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. So Joseph has just obtained some valuable information from his brothers at this point. He knows now that Benjamin is alive rather than dead. He would infer that his father is still alive. But Joseph had to have been stunned to hear his brothers say, your servants are 12 brothers in all and one is no longer alive. Literally, they're saying, and one is no more. Joseph would have had no clue prior to this point as to how his brothers described his fate to people until this moment. And now Joseph hears them say, and one is no longer alive. Observe what Joseph does next. And this brings us to the fourth development in the story Number four, Joseph tests his brothers by requiring them to bring Benjamin to Egypt. Joseph continues his bad cop routine in verses 14 and 15. Look what the text says, beginning in verse 14. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. And notice the core purpose of Joseph's test. It's to see whether there is truth in his brothers. This is the perfect goal given his history with them. So this is Joseph's bad cop routine, which ends with him throwing his brothers harshly in prison for three days. But after the three days go by, Joseph changes his tune and plays good cop. 
with his brothers. Observe what happens in verses 18 through 20. The text says, Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear Elohim. I fear God. This had to have surprised Joseph's brothers to hear this confession coming from a seemingly pagan ruler. But he says, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. So Joseph has softened his tune quite a bit. At first, he was only going to let one of them return to get Benjamin while all the others remained in prison in Egypt. But now he's allowing all of them to return home to get Benjamin with only one of them being held in prison in Egypt. However, Joseph does deliver a, a veiled threat of death if they don't cooperate with his desires. Do this and live, he says in verse 18. And you will not die, he says in verse 20. Joseph is referring here either to death by execution or death by famine because Egypt would no longer sell them any more grain in the coming months and years if they don't produce their brother, Benjamin. It's here that a corner gets turned and Joseph gets a tremendous glimpse into his brother's hearts. It turns out that their three days in prison have been good for these brothers, giving them a lot of time to think and to reflect. This brings us to the next development in this amazing story Number five, Joseph hears his brother's convicted consciences at work and weeps. Observe what Joseph's brothers do in verse 21. Then they said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Wow. What amazing words these are coming from Joseph's brothers. The first words out of their mouths are truly we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph. This is a huge moment, not just in Joseph's brother's lives, but it's even a huge moment in the Bible. This is the very first time in the Bible that a sinner explicitly confesses his sin using the language of guilt. It's the first time we see words like we are guilty. Joseph's brothers are lingering on this, not passing it swiftly by. They're admitting their guilt concerning how they treated Joseph. They're remembering the hurt that they caused to Joseph, remembering his distress of soul, which they're saying we saw. They're remembering how Joseph pleaded with them, and they're remembering their callous refusal to listen to Joseph's pleadings. They've spent clearly the last 20 or so years waiting for some shoe of judgment to drop on them. And it never came. But now the shoe they feel is dropping here. What goes around comes around. And they're concluding that their present distress in Egypt is coming upon them from God specifically because of what they had done to Joseph. 20, 21 years prior. At this point, Reuben speaks up in verse 22. The text says, Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? 
and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. It's clear from what Reuben is saying here that he still thinks that Joseph is dead, which means that his brothers never told him that they had sold him to some traitors. All these 20 years, including right now, Reuben has thought that his brothers killed Joseph. And now Reuben sees, together with his brothers, this present distress as a reckoning for the blood of Joseph, which he thinks has been shed. Now, what Reuben says here makes it clear that he is not as guilty as his brothers are, but he's not totally innocent either. Even if Reuben thinks that his brothers have killed Joseph, he has served his father poorly for 20 years in allowing the truth about Joseph to be concealed from his dad. And he served his brothers poorly in allowing them to get by with making their father think that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Reuben has been tormented for 20 plus years over what happened with Joseph. And he's tormented now as he considers that their troubles now in Egypt are vengeance upon them all because of what they had done to Joseph two decades prior. Now, as these brothers are speaking to one another in this way with their convicted consciences in overdrive, they did not realize something. Observe what is said in verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood. In other words, that he understood what they were saying to each other, for there was an interpreter between them. Evidently, up until this point, they had been conversing with Joseph through an interpreter And I'm sure that speaking through the interpreter was part of Joseph's disguise. Acting like he did not understand Hebrew. So they had no idea that Joseph understood Hebrew. Now they're talking amongst themselves in their own native language. And the interpreter is not saying anything to Joseph to interpret what they're saying. So these brothers assume that Joseph could not understand them. But he did. And notice Joseph's reaction in verse 24. He turned away from them and wept. He turned away from them and wept. I think Joseph is feeling a lot of emotions right now that I don't think any of us could fully quantify. There's a part of him that is probably weeping here in sympathy with his brothers, seeing their torment of conscience. And I am sure that he's also shedding tears of joy, at least in part. His brother's words show that they're not completely calloused. Joseph sees that they've been haunted by what they did to Joseph. He sees now that they're feeling a crushing weight of guilt for what they had done to Joseph For 20 years, Joseph probably viewed Reuben as equally responsible for what had happened to him. But now he knows that Reuben had actually tried to protect him. This had to have moved Joseph very deeply. All in all, Joseph would know from what his brothers were saying to each other right now that Joseph has struck a nerve. And he knows that now is not the time to back off, but to press on with a mixture of justice and grace. If Joseph can just get himself together and stop crying. So he dries his eyes and composes himself for the hard work ahead and presses on with the tough love that he still has to implement here. And this leads us to the next development in this riveting story of how a great healing begins to come to Jacob's house. Number six, Joseph binds Simeon and generously supplies his brothers for their return to Canaan. Observe what Joseph does after he collects himself. Verse 24, but when he returned to them after he had cried for a spell and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them 
and bound him before their eyes. Having just learned that Reuben had pled for Joseph's life, Joseph grabbed Simeon, who was the second oldest son of Jacob. And he binds Simeon before his brother's eyes. He clearly wants the image of Simeon being bound to be burned into their minds as they return to Canaan. And he wants Simeon to taste the indignity of this being bound before his brother's eyes. That's the toughness part of the tough love here. But then comes the love and the grace. Notice what Joseph does next. Verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. Notice that there are three things that Joseph orders to be done here. Number one, he orders that their bags be filled with grain. That's a gracious thing to do for brothers who had once treated Joseph the way that they did. Number two, he orders that their purchase money be put in each man's sack of grain, essentially giving them the grain for free. That's amazing grace. And he orders that they be provided with provisions for their journey back to Canaan. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve any of these kindnesses at all, but this is what Joseph now does for them. He has dealt harshly with his brothers, but he has done so with redemptive intent. And here he deals kindly and graciously with his brothers, and he shows them this kindness with redemptive intent. I must say, though, that I agree with commentators who say that in covertly putting his brother's money back in their sacks of grain, Joseph knew very well that it would alarm them when they discovered the money in their sacks. But Joseph figured that, well, even that'll be good for them and prove useful. The truth is that when your conscience is tormenting you, You're not even able to rightly process kindnesses from the Lord that are done to you. And this brings us to the next development in this story. Number seven, Joseph's brothers tremble when they discover a brother's purchase money in his sack. Observe what happens beginning in verse 26. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. Observe their response in verse 28. And their hearts sank. The Hebrew literally is, and their hearts went out. Their hearts left them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Notice that they're pondering, what is God up to here? They're not thinking so much about what Joseph is thinking, but what is this that God is doing to us? This is the first time that we hear God on their lips And they're realizing that their sin against Joseph was a sin against God. And they're feeling the heat of God coming after them on this. They know that God's discipline is on them. Yet in the middle of this discipline, here is this kindness too. They don't know what to make of this. All they can do is ask, what is this that God is doing to us? Has God caused this to happen so that We would look like criminals and thieves who stole the money, making our return to Egypt at a later time much more complicated. They're not even envisioning that this is an amazing grace and mercy from God. One of the things that we observe here is that when your conscience is eating you alive over some great wrong that you have done, 
and you don't make that matter right, your conscience will attach itself to anything and everything to torment you. And that's what's happening to Joseph's brothers here. They're tormented by what is essentially a demonstration of God's grace towards them. This brings us to the next development in this story. Number eight, Joseph's brothers tell Jacob of the Lord of the land's demand that they return with Benjamin. Observe what Joseph's brothers do when they return to Canaan and talk to their father. Verse 29, when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man... The Lord of the land spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive. And the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. Notice the positioning of these three statements as they speak to their father and recount what they said to the Lord of the land in Egypt. We are honest men. We are 12 brothers. One is no longer alive. That's what they said to Joseph in Egypt. That's what they're now quoting themselves as saying as they're speaking to their dad. We are honest men. 12 brothers. One is no longer alive. Even though they had earlier concluded that their distress in Egypt was coming upon them because of what they had done against Joseph, they still can't bring themselves to confess their sin to their father here. Even though this would have been a great moment to do that. Instead, they do what we often do. We're guilty of some offense over here to the left, but we point to some way that someone has misjudged us over here to the right, and we defend ourselves here. Dad, the man accused us of being spies. Can you believe it? We're not spies. We're honest men who went down to Egypt with honest intent. And it probably felt good for them to defend themselves in an area where they could be defended rightly. Yet even in telling their dad the story of what happened in this matter in which they felt like they were in the right, they retold to their father a 20-year-old lie that had to have felt like gravel in their mouths this time around. One is no longer alive. We are honest men. We are 12 brothers in all. One is no longer alive. They say this to their dad, knowing that, in fact, they sold Joseph into slavery. They then explain to Jacob why Simeon is not with them and what has been demanded of them. Speaking to their father, they say in verse 33, the man, they say, the Lord of the land said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother Simeon to you and you may trade in the land. Again, the purpose of Joseph's test is said to be so that he may know that they are honest men. The truth is that Joseph is seeking to make honest men of them. And they're still not there yet. So Joseph's brothers explain this to all of this to their father, Jacob, and then observe what happens next. And this brings us to the ninth development in this Story number nine, Joseph's brothers and Jacob are dismayed over all that is happening. Observe what happens in verse 35. 
Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Again, this is an overwhelming, gracious gesture on the part of Joseph. And it's even more than that. In verse 23 of the next chapter, it will be said to them, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. So this money in their grain sacks is God through Joseph showing them undeserved, amazing, gracious kindness, yet their guilty consciences won't allow them to receive it as such. Literally, the Hebrew reads, they were afraid. And the grammar of the passage indicates that Jacob is afraid together with them. In fact, Jacob is so fearful that he lashes out and gives voice to an accusation against his sons that had to have made their blood stand still. Jacob's sons returning from a trip with extra money and a brother missing recalls a memory in Jacob of them returning about 20 years ago from another trip with extra money, like 20 shekels of silver worth and their brother Joseph missing. Observe what Jacob does in verse 36, the text says, their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and you would take Benjamin. It's almost as if Jacob is speaking with under inspiration with the insight of a prophet, not realizing how true his words are. Talking to his nine sons, he says, somehow, somehow, what happened to Joseph and now what has happened to Simeon is your fault. And you want to take Benjamin on your next trip? The walls are closing in on these brothers. They've been accused in Egypt and now they're being accused by their dad of bereaving him of both Joseph and now Simeon. It's almost as if a vague sense of suspicion is coming over Jacob that he can't quite put his finger on. And Jacob voices his accusation to them with the precision that had to have come directly from God himself and the brothers would have known it. Of course, Jacob is also focused on himself. And he can't help but end with a whine. With a flourish, he concludes his speech by saying, all these things are against me. Everything's against me. Jacob doesn't trust his sons right now as far as he can throw them at this point. They've lost Simeon on this trip to Egypt and now they want to take Benjamin. No way. This leads us to the final development in this story, which is going to leave us at an impasse. You're not going to want to leave this morning. You're going to want to get into chapter 43, but we will leave at an impasse this morning. Development number 10, Jacob refuses to allow Benjamin to return to Egypt with his sons. He refuses. Observe what happens in verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him, Benjamin, back to you. Put him, put Benjamin in my care, and I will return him to you. What a strange offer this is. I wonder what Reuben's sons thought of this offer on their dad's part. Did they hear it and say, yeah, you go, dad. It's a great thing to say. Offer our lives and what possible consolation would it have been to Jacob to kill two of his grandchildren because Benjamin got lost? Having said that, Reuben's offer does show how serious he is about seeing to it that Benjamin be returned to Jacob. Reuben feels like he failed to protect Joseph 20 years earlier when he had the chance and he will not fail to protect Benjamin now. 
However, try as Reuben and his brothers might, Jacob refuses to let Benjamin out of his hands. Listen to Jacob's response in verse 38. The text says, But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother, Joseph, is dead, and he, Benjamin, alone is left of the two sons of Rachel. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol, or the grave, in sorrow. Jacob's sons would hear Jacob's words, his refusal, and the rationale for it, and they would be left thinking, if we had not done what we did to Joseph 20 years ago, our dad would have no qualms about sending Benjamin with us right now. They realize that they are right now at this impasse because of what they had done to Joseph. Everything, it seems, that is happening in this chapter is serving as finger after finger of accusation pointing at these brothers and their sin that God is wanting to bring to the surface. As for Jacob, it's clear that Jacob would rather keep Benjamin and lose Simeon if that's his only option. Little does Jacob know that in refusing to allow Benjamin to go with his brothers to Egypt, he is delaying an amazingly good thing that God wants to do in this family. With this statement from Jacob, the chapter ends at an impasse with Joseph's brothers trembling in fear, with fainting hearts, not sure what to make of things. Also listening to their father as he whines about how everything is against him and refusing to allow Benjamin to go. Things right now seem a whole lot worse than they did a few weeks ago. Yet even though Jacob and his sons don't know this yet, they are all a little closer to healing than they were before. Sometimes when God seeks to do a good work in the lives of his people, things have to get worse before they get better. And that's what's happening here. And that's how this chapter ends. As one writer says about Genesis 42 and how it ends, he says, here the narrator graphically portrays the process of reconciliation in its mid-phase. Henry Morris, the commentator, says Joseph's brothers had experienced a measure of repentance during their traumatic experience in Egypt, but there was still much to be accomplished in their hearts by God's spirit before they would be truly prepared and unified to serve as the fathers and founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's a lot of work still to be done but for now, there's a little bit of time for everyone to process what has happened before the next trip to Egypt, before the next step in God's intervention is required. They have enough grain to live on for a while. It may last them for two or three months or so, but the famine is not going to relent. And eventually they will run out of grain and have to return to Egypt. And when that happens, God is going to turn up the pressure in order to lance the boil that sits so heavy on Jacob's family right now and come back next Sunday and see what happens. In the end, healing is going to come to Jacob's family. The best and most wonderful moment of Jacob's troubled life actually still lies in his future. A day is coming for Jacob that is far greater than he could dare imagine at this point. And guys, it's an unrelenting famine that sets things in motion for this greater, wonderful moment to arrive down the road. Maybe you find yourself in a season of famine right now. On the authority of Scripture I can tell you that God is not wasting your famine. 
He is up to something good. And the famine that you are right now finding yourself in the middle of is merely one of the means that he is using to get you to that good thing. Do you believe that? Right now, Jacob is whining in the middle of his circumstances, thinking everything is against him, when in fact, God, we know as the readers, God is working all things together for Jacob's good and for the good of his family. But we can often be like Jacob, thinking that everything is against us, when in fact, God is doing something amazingly wonderful that's going to lead to our ultimate good and God's glory. How many times have we said, man, everything's going wrong. Everything's against me. Everyone's against me. All things are against me, Jacob says. And sometimes we can talk the same way when we ought to be saying, I know that God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. But in the moment we hurt, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline is right now coming to Jacob's house, and it hurts, but God loves Jacob He loves Jacob's sons, and whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, just as he disciplines us, too. On one level, Joseph's brothers would have loved it if they could have just gotten by with their sin. But that would have been the worst thing that could have happened to them. God loves them too much to allow them to get by with their sin. In closing, I want to take us back to verse 21, where we see Joseph's brothers say the words, truly, we are guilty. That's an astonishing moment of humility for these brothers after 20 years of carrying their sin. And this confession is actually a sign of spiritual life. They're not complaining anymore about Joseph's dreams or how his father hated him or favored him. Sorry about that. They're confessing their own sin without making any excuses. And it's God who brought them to this amazing moment where they're saying, truly, we are guilty. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis tells the story of his conversion to belief in God Lewis had always been such a critic of Christianity and theism, but as God began to press the reality of himself upon C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis began to feel God's critique of him. And he began to see himself in a whole new light. He wrote these words. He says, for the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. That was a watershed moment for C.S. Lewis a watershed moment of self-discovery for him. And eventually God brought Lewis to belief in Christ as a savior. But that admission of personal guilt was a significant part of Lewis's spiritual journey. And this is the journey all of us must take to salvation, right? Seeing our sin for what it is, confessing it truly, and looking to Jesus alone for the atonement that only he can provide to us. If you've never come before God and allowed yourself to feel his critique of you to where you have responded by saying, truly, I 
am guilty. I urge you to allow that to happen today and to make that admission today. Speak those words before God today. Make that admission at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus, the Savior who died and who shed his blood on that cross so that you might have atonement for the sins you're guilty of and receive the forgiveness of your sins. That's available to you today. If you would believe in Jesus and admit your guilt before him If you are a Christian, you should become practiced at saying, truly, I am guilty. These words should come most easily off the lips of Christians. Knowing that the God that we confess to is a merciful God who delights to show mercy to those who come to him with a heart that is broken over their sin. And he provided his son who shed his blood so that they can have atonement. Jacob is right now afraid to give up the son whom he loves most of all. But God is not like Jacob. God was willing to give up his precious son and surrender him over to die on the cross so that everyone who admits their brokenness and their guilt before him can have forgiveness of sins through Christ. And that's why Christians of all people should show the most courage in saying before God and man, truly, I am guilty. Because such a confession, they know, will not be the end of the story. It never is. In fact, it's God's first miracle of many miracles to come down the road. And we're going to see how true that is in the coming chapters of this amazing book of Genesis. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we're dazzled by your word and how incisively it cuts into our own hearts and pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and gives us vocabulary with which to see ourselves and explain ourselves before you. We see your amazing patience on display in this chapter. Twenty years go by and you are working now and they're admitting their guilt in one moment and the next moment Joseph's brothers are hiding it and You're going to wait a few more months and patiently, lovingly, you will bring them to the point where the breakthrough happens. And I can't read this account and not think of all the ways you have chased me and my sin and have pursued my soul and still do to this day in bringing me and all of us, Lord, to places of brokenness and confession before you. You're a patient and a loving God, but you are a God who despises sin and you love us too much to allow us to remain in our sin. And if we have the name of Christ on us and we belong to you, you will not let us remain in our sin. So we thank you for your severe mercy and the ways you show your goodness to us in some moments in ways that makes us sore with joy and other moments which makes us bleed. And you are all wise and we're thankful that your wisdom is unsearchable, but you are perfect in all the ways that you deal with your people. If there's any in this room, Lord, whose hearts you are touching, who have never bowed before you as the Lord of their lives and confessed their guilt before you, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see the beauty of doing just that. And that they would say before you today, truly, I am guilty. 
and that they would turn their eyes from their guilt and look upon a Savior who shed his blood and died on a cross so that they can have atonement for the sins that they're guilty of and that they may walk out of this room washed by your blood and cleansed and children of God rather than walking out of here in their sin. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to give up our offerings to you, receive these funds that we give in this offering and do much with every penny that is given for the glory of Jesus, for the work of the gospel here in this community and around the world. And we surrender ourselves to you as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said.